Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is drummer and producer Tony Bronigal. First of all, let's talk about streaming payments. They're all over the map, as you well know, and also what you read may not always be accurate, but one of the more accurate streaming Bibles that come out comes from David Lowry on his Tricordist website. If you don't know who David is, he was a founding member of Camper Van Beethoven way back when and Cracker, and now he's a professor at the University of Georgia Music Business Program. But that being said, every year he puts out a streaming pricing Bible, and this year it's based on one indie label that has a 350 album catalog. To be honest with you, I don't know if that's enough to really get an accurate picture of what streaming royalties are like, but it's pretty much in the ballpark from what I can tell. He only looks at the top 30 streaming services. So you may be thinking, wow, I didn't know there are that many. But yeah, there's actually more than 30. He just looks at those 30. That being said, some of the biggest in the world come from Asia, like Tencent and Beidou. And the fact of the matter is, it's mostly Asian music. They have far more users than Spotify or any of the others all put together, but if they don't play Western music, it doesn't much matter. So if we look at who pays the most, I think you're going to be surprised, because certainly I was. Who's the top? Facebook. They pay about a nickel a stream, and that comes out to $57,000 per million. Now, I've talked about this over and over, the fact that you have to scale up your idea of what's a lot. When it comes to anything digital, anything online, a million isn't all that many. Really, we have to get to about 50 million to even have a minor hit. And we have to go way beyond 100 million to have kind of a major hit. And a big worldwide hit is way past a billion. So a million just kind of scratches the surface, but it still gives you a measuring point of how much money you can make. So Facebook, 57,000 per million, and that's the very top. The next one down is Peloton. Yeah, the exercise machine company. Finally, they're paying money for the music that they're using. And that comes out to about three cents per stream or $31,000 per million. Next comes from iMusica which is primarily based in Latin America, and they're about two cents per stream, or about 22,000 per million that you'll make in royalties. Next comes iHeartRadio at about almost two cents, 1.7 cents, or 17,000 per million streams. And coming up at number five is Amazon Unlimited. Now this is the high-end tier of Amazon Music, and they're paying at just a tad over one cent per stream, or $11,000 per million. So you might think, okay, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, when we compare Spotify, they're paying .0034, or about $3,400,000 per million streams. Now, all the other ones are way, way less than 1% of the total streaming business. So it sounds really good about Facebook and Peloton and iMusica, but the fact of the matter is, it's rare that anybody's going to get a million streams out of them. So you can look at this and say, hmm, okay, it doesn't really matter too much, does it? Because I probably will never see a million streams there. If I do see a million streams, it's more likely to come from Spotify, and they're not paying a huge amount. You're more likely to get it from like iHeartRadio, but even there, not so much, because what they play is restricted by the radio playlist. So really, when it comes down to it, if you're going to get a lot of streams, it's going to come from Pandora, Apple Music, Amazon Music, Spotify. So who pays the least amount? Well, that would be YouTube Content ID. Content ID is the fingerprinting mechanism that basically puts a digital fingerprint on every song that's uploaded. And that way, you can tell if somebody is using it on their own videos. So you can go and claim it and actually make money off them. And a lot of labels do this and have full staffs that just look at this. That being said, it's only paying about $220 per million streams. Now let's compare this. The top is Facebook at 57,000 per million. 
The lowest is YouTube content ID at $220 per million. Just regular YouTube is not that much better at about $1,500 per million. Now, to make matters worse, it's great if you own the copyright and all the money's going right into your pocket, but if there's a record label involved, guess what? They're getting the majority of that, so that's why it takes a whole lot of streams to actually make money from it. But there are artists that are making tons of money. It's just not everybody. It's kind of like the 1% or the 0.1%. They seem to make all the money, and it's no different in streaming than it is anywhere else in life. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Okay, let's talk about guitar stomp boxes, guitar pedals, but this time with a twist. Now, when I was a young guitar player, just like most other guitar players, I had a ton of pedals on the floor. And eventually I discovered that I wasn't really using them. They looked good, but the fact of the matter is I was probably only using one or two per night. So eventually what I did was get rid of all those distortion boxes, and that's mostly what they were back then, and I built one into my guitar. And that made it really easy. But of course, in the 80s, everybody was going to big racks of gear, and I was no exception. But what finally stopped me was the fact that I played with a guy called Jerry Groom, who was a master blues guitar player and a protege of Dwayne Allman. I actually went on to produce a couple of his albums as well. Now, in playing with Jerry, all he did was plug directly into a really nice old Fender Super Amp And with his Les Paul, it sounded fantastic. He looked at me after playing for a bit, and he says, why do you use all that stuff? It'll sound better if you just plug in directly. So I did that, and it opened up a whole new world. Goodbye pedals. I just got the sound from the amplifier from then on. But the fact of the matter is, pedals are here to stay, and everybody really likes them. I kind of lost interest because they're all pretty much the same, slightly different flavors, and it's like, well... Been there, done that. But the reason why I bring this up is there is something that really jumped out at me recently, and it's called the Rangers Mini Bar. It's an overdrive pedal, and it's based on liquid, any kind of liquid. It makes no sound until you pour some sort of liquid in it. From there, there's a liquid analyzer that determines the sound and gain depending on what kind of liquid you put in. So it all depends on the opacity of the liquid that will give you a different tone and a different amount of distortion. It only has a volume control on it and just a little cup that you pour liquid in. It could be anything. The only thing that changes, again, is the tone and the amount of distortion that you get. So you can pour Pepsi in or whiskey or pig's blood if you want that pig's blood sound. The more opaque it is, the different the sound. Soy sauce. Soy sauce has a very interesting, deep, dark sound. And actually, if you add salt or sugar, it increases the gain. So this is a very unique twist on pedals. And I just thought it was so far out of the box that I wanted to mention it because I've never seen anything like it, never heard anything like it. It's $129. It's called Ranger's Mini Bar. What a perfect name for a pedal like that. My guest today is drummer and producer Tony Bronigal, who's been the drummer for a wide variety of artists, including Bonnie Raitt, Robert Cray, Ricky Lee Jones, and Taj Mahal, among many others. It was with Taj that Tony gained a name for himself as a producer, working on the Grammy Award-winning Shoutin' and Key album that also won a prestigious W.C. Handy Award. Since then, he's become a very respected producer in the blues genre, besides being a much-in-demand drummer. During the interview, we spoke about Tony growing up in Texas, but getting his break in the UK, discovering blues early in life, producing from behind the drum kit, and much more. I spoke with Tony via phone.
from his home in Los Angeles. I want you to take me back to when you started. You were in Texas, right? I was born in Houston, Texas, and um, started playing music at the at the age of fifteen professionally, where I started making money. Uh, my first paying gig uh, on drums. Started playing when I was fifteen professionally, and uh, and got just kind of into the deep end. I never took really took formal lessons. I learned from a friend of mine, my best friend in Houston, and and studied records and got was able to play all of those R and B styles of that period. And, uh, I just kept expounding on that and played around in nightclubs and whatnot. And then around 69, 70, I decided that I wanted to get out of the nightclub thing and be in a band, you know, and write songs. <laughs> so I did, I did that. And then, uh, the band after about a year together, got a record deal with Polydor and we made a single and, I got to go out of town to Memphis and record with the Memphis Horns and at an iconic and at an iconic Memphis studio and and um, uh, that was like that was an eye opener for me. I was like, oh okay, I think this is what I'm going to do. I've stayed after that, you know, in the studios ever since. Uh, I got interested in studio working and recording early as a drummer and um, and pretty much did that and have done that all my life and still doing it. And, um, uh, I, I love it. I love, I love the process. I love the feedback that you get when you've done something good. I like, I like the feeling of how it all comes together. I mean, at the end of the day, if I've had a good day, I'm, I'm just as happy with how it came together as, as I probably would be if it were a hit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Right. Right. I want to go back again because you've had a, a very interesting life prior to your production life, which is just as interesting. But take me back to like your first band. I know that uh, you went to New York to record, right? Well, the first band we recorded in Memphis, uh, that was a band called Buttermilk Bottom. And then the next band I was in after that band broke up was a band called Bluntz, B-L-O-O-N-T-Z. And we got a record deal with Evolution Records. And uh, we went to Electric Lady and we recorded our album there. And we ended up moving to New York for about almost two years and uh which was a struggle because we were all broke poor hippies and we stayed that way <laughs> <laughs> and the record uh you know it, the single got some airplay and uh but it never nothing of real notoriety you know we got out there and got on the radio and the music business knew about us a little bit but then boom we were gone mm, yeah then, then uh johnny nash was looking for a band to go on the road with him and uh he was advised to call us up and we 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 sort of knew him from houston anyhow because that was his hometown as well and so we talked to him and his manager and they decided they wanted to hire us to be their rhythm section so that's when our band blues kind of kind of broken uh, broke up if it hadn't been for that we might have been able to stay together but we were having struggles anyhow and uh so the guitar player the bass player myself and the keyboard player went on the road with johnny nash and that was quite interesting. He brought four Ghanaian uh, musicians with him. One was a percussionist and the other three were horns. And man, we got infused, you know. <laughs> I bet. Hayseeds from Houston meets uh, Sub-Saharan West African fireballs. In, uh, <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. It was really incredible. And we, uh, we got, I got a lot of knowledge about playing alternative stuff that what I was doing already or what I was learning from the Ghanaians, they kind of pulled me aside several times and gave me some special tutoring. And I, I, to this day, I value it very much, very, very much. I use it. I still use it. It still comes up, you know? Well, like what? Well, like uh, wait, some of the, some of the rhythms and everything that they play, you know, off of the high life and, and, and turning the beat around and, 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 and the way it felt and everything, it wasn't like this boom, boom, bat, boom, boom, bat, bat beat kind of stuff. It was, there's a backbeat in there, but it's kind of turned around in a lot of ways. And they showed me some of that stuff and, and it opened my mind because it was difficult for me to play at first, you know, and I, I've used it man, I've used it on people's records without them even knowing it. You know, <laughs> I've, I've, I've masked that, that little bit of knowledge and every once in a while throw something in and everybody goes, what's that? And I go, eh, you know, it's a little <laughs> thing, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and I still do. In fact, last night I played a gig with the Bone Daddies. They're a world beat band. And 
there's a whole lot of West African and South African uh, stuff in that uh, in that repertoire, and a lot of reggae and ska and um, and some R and B. So last night I got a chance to exercise it mightily for three sets. I had a wonderful time playing. Then the Johnny Nash thing, uh, uh, like all things, have a you know an expiration date, and that fell apart. And we we made some recording with uh, the band. The band was called the Sons of Jungle, and we made some recordings uh, at a studio down in Texas that that I'd spoken to a friend of mine who was an engineer there. And he said, why don't you come in for a couple of days and you guys record? And we went in and he gave us the tapes without the studio, even knowing it. So we walked out of there with the master tapes. We didn't really do anything with it. We tried to carry on, but not having any sort of backing or management. I wasn't in the business mind, you know, then that I am now. And, um, or else we probably would have found a, uh, an outlet and a way to do that. But the reality is, four of us were from the United States and four from, they were living in London at the time. So there was always going to be a problem with the distance. So I finished that around 73, something like that. When like, what's next? And I moved back to Texas from New York and, um, got a call from John rabbit Bundrick in London, who was someone, a keyboard player that we grew up with in Houston. And he was, in the band before Blutes, before it was Blutes, it was another band, <clears throat> and I ended up being in the uh, the version after. And he um, he was a recording artist for Island Records. Now he had, at this point, and he had made one record, and he wanted to have myself and the bass player be a part of his band and go with him to wherever he was headed next musically. So he talked to Chris Blackwell, or he proposed or whatever. I'm not sure how it started. Chris Blackwell. Of that owned Island Records to taking us into the situation over there, and so we got on a plane. It was our at our own expense to get there, and flew. Terry Wilson and I flew to London, just like never been there before. Wow! <laughs> the only the only time I've been out of the country before was to Mexico, and uh, and kind of new to me, you know. And I was young, and next thing I know, I'm in I'm on King's Road, Chelsea, London. Right uh, in the middle of it. Yeah. And uh, they gave us an apartment and a stipend to live off of. And we were at their disposal for Island Records uh, for some time there. And that tenure was, was short in, it was short, officially short, in that it was only, it only lasted six or seven months, something like that. And then they said, well, you can go home now. And we went, no, we're not going home. We're, what do you think we did while we were here? You know, we made a, we made a mark. And, um, we decided to get our own apartment to stay and we managed to find ways to make money to pull it off, even without the working permit and uh, the support that we had from Island somewhat. Uh, it went well at Island though. I got to back up. We did, we played with a lot of their artists, you know, and uh, Speedy Keen and, and, uh, and John Martin, the great Scottish oh, yeah. singing guy. Folk was saying he's fantastic. We recorded with him and several other artists that probably, maybe got very small minor releases. And then some other producers discovered that Terry and I were, you know, base, uh, a rhythm section from Texas and wanted our sound and our vibe and our feel. And we ended up doing a lot of recording sessions for that, for other people. And I'd be at Trident, I'd be at air studios. I'd be at, uh, at Basing street. I'd be at, uh, uh, Delane Lee out of Wembley. I would be, you know, all over, I would be all over the map recording in London. And, um, that was, that was really good and fun. And then, uh, then in about 70, 76, 77, somewhere around there, Paul Kossoff, uh, had reemerged and, uh, a guitarist. And he was a, a guitarist in free that played on all right now on their hits and whatnot back when free was happening for Island records. Right. And free, free, free broke up, and a couple of the members went out and started uh, Bad Company. And Paul wanted to do his thing too, so Island was up for it, and so management got in touch with us and asked us if we would be the rhythm section. And um, honestly, I said no. <laughs> <laughs> and on the cab, in the cab ride on the way over to Island that morning, I said to Terry, I said, I don't really want to do this. This is not the direction I want to go with this rock and roll thing. Uh, there's nothing against it. Just, I have other musical things that I want to explore. 
And I would rather explore the R&B scene or the, the African scene or something else like that at that time because I was more intrigued by that. And um, I took the job. We, I, I, Terry talked me into it. We went and we did it. He said, oh, just give it a try for a while. And it was good and bad. It was really difficult in that Paul's addiction never went away and he died with it uh, on a plane ride. And we made two records with him. And basically we, being the studio guys that we were, God, I don't want to come off uppity or anything, you know, by saying all this, but we really manufactured those records and, and the band, you know what I mean? And Paul kind of became, he was part of it that he was a guitarist, but you know, the concept and the actual execution of it was more Terry and I and the keyboard player than anything else in the beginning. And then, we made two records and Atlantic signed us away from an island and Ahmed Erdogan came around and I mean, he, he worked us. He came around, he followed us around. Ahmed came to our gigs, came to the studio, wanted to sign us, talked us into it, talked the management into it. And as far as he was concerned, in his own words, he was turning us into the next Led Zeppelin. Huh. And it probably could have had some legs and done something had we had a guitar player that was healthy. So we made our second record while we were doing dates, promotional dates in the States, uh, going back and forth between coasts because there wasn't much in between that the record labels could put together that weren't like sort of showcase kind of things. Paul's addiction carried on and on and on, but we still cut a whole bunch of songs and made a second record for them. Then on the plane ride home from LA to New York on a red eye, as we were going to do some promotion for one day in New York and then head back to London and get their album mixed. Paul uh, on the plane passed away. He went to the bathroom and something happened. Oh. Yeah. So I was on the plane. I was actually sitting, sitting next to him when we took off and I fell asleep on the red eye. And I woke up and there was no Paul in the middle seat. Wow. So that brought all that to an abrupt end, except that everyone at Atlantic was like, what are they going to do? So we, we tried and tried to get Mick Taylor from the Rolling Stones and, two or three other very famous guitarists. We talked to these people and some of them were interested and almost wanted to do it and da, da, da. But no one ever really said, okay, I'll be in backstreet crawler and take Paul Kossoff's place. <clears throat> so we went out and found another guitarist and the label wasn't happy, but they strung us out with the contract as long as they could. And it took some real doing to get us out of it. We got out of it and we went on to, we found new management. And got out of the Atlantic contract. Management helped us in this great lawyer head in, in London. And then management got us a deal with CBS. And we made two records as Crawler, shortening the name, uh, with CBS. And um, did well. We, wrote, we went out and wrote, on the road and uh, toured and opened up for Kansas and Foreigner and uh, Rush and Robin Trower and all sorts of big arena names like that. You know, they put us on this arena tour and arena tours and we would drive around in cars while the other guys were traveling, you know, the way that rock stars did. <laughs> and we would make these arena tours and, uh, and did, did pretty well. And I think we, you know, we got a lot of air playoff, especially one of our songs probably could have stayed after it and done well and done another record. The spirit once again was shifting a little bit and the, and the, the producer, didn't think we had songs and was misrepresenting us at the record label. Right around that time, we were kind of getting tired of living in London. I was kind of ready to be back in the States. And uh, the keyboard player Rabbit got an offer from Pete Townsend to join the Who. So, boom, there it went. Backstreet Crawler, Crawler, it's gone. Yeah. Terry and I hung out in, in Houston for a while and worked around the clubs and everything, which was easy as soon as I, you know, being from Houston, I, I came back to town said, Hey, I'm in town. I was getting gigs right away, you know? Yeah. And, um, I decided then, okay, well, I'm going to make that move to LA that I've been wanting to make three times already. <laughs> <laughs> the first time was be before Bloons. I wanted to move to LA. I didn't after Bloons before I was going to go to London. I had plans. I had to go to Los Angeles or San Francisco and I had things set up in both places that I could have plugged into. And I, I didn't. Because I got the offer in London. That was the second time. Then the third time, it was all on me, and I went, I'm going. And so I remember telling the guys one night at, on a little gig and these wonderful little fun nightclub gigs that we had. They were really a lot of fun in Houston. 
And um, I said, hey, guys, I'm going to L.A. in about a week or two. And they go, why? And I go, what do you mean, why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Why? <laughs> so, you don't get it? Okay. So next thing I know, little by little, after a day or two or three or four days, eventually all of them said, yeah, we all want to go, too. And I said, I didn't invite you. <laughs> <laughs> so we made a mass exodus of that for those four guys. And uh, Terry stayed and I stayed and the other guys went back eventually. And, and uh, one of them, God bless him, has passed away. He was a really good friend. And the other one's still writing songs and working around Houston, Texas right now. And I moved out here in 79. And, um, man, I was working with Eric Burden almost, well, September. Sometime in 80, I think, already. I was working. At first, it was sketchy as hell because I moved to a new place and I did cartage for my best friend, the drummer who got me started on my street in Houston, Texas, and sold me my first drum kit. And my big brother still, to this day, I did his cartage. He was doing lots of film dates. And so I would take his drums around and make hundred bucks, 75 bucks, 150 bucks back then. Hell, that was a lot of money. Yeah. And happy to do it. Happy to do it to make some money. And I ended up getting some demo work, uh, for publishers for a couple of publishers before the drum machine took all that away. I, uh, just anything I could pick up and, uh, you know, bands were really showcasing back then. Like somebody would put together their songs and they would go and play clubs and you'd have showcase clubs where you'd have, you probably still have them somewhat younger bands you know where you'd be four or five bands in one night oh yeah and uh you go put 30 minutes 40 minutes whatever you do your showcase and you never got paid and every once in a while the artist would kick down a few bucks but i did it for exposure and by doing that i met someone who uh well the eric burden connection came through someone who i started working with as soon as i moved out here a friend of mine from texas um lewis cabaza and then he said, man, we got this, we can, uh, can you come play on some demos for Eric Burden at this guy's home studio? And man, the home studio was like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the living room, you know? And, um, <laughs> and we cut a whole bunch of stuff there and then Eric liked it. And he liked that combo. So he wanted to do some local California dates. So we worked up some tunes and did them and did three or four gigs like that. And, and uh, I wasn't sure what was happening with management, what they were going to do, but I wasn't, I wasn't happy with the bass player. So I said, you guys should probably try this guy here, my friend Terry Wilson. I've worked with him for many years. So they liked him, and Terry, Terry got his gig. I got him his first gig in L.A. And um, did Eric Burden for a while, then I could see the business was starting to go south for management and, uh, and other reasons, which I'm not going to say public <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah got it. Uh, and 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 um around that time i got by doing a showcase thing it's all about you know put yourself out there in a positive way i guess it's, that, that's kind of going to be my message here and by doing the showcase things i got noticed and became friends by noticed by someone who had some ties at warner brothers and i became friends with this guy and then one night he says to me he says hey man would you be interested in maybe auditioning for Ricky Lee Jones. And I said, well, of course, you know, but then I started shaking, you know, the thought <laughs> of, wow, yeah, here I go. And he says, well, okay. So a couple of days later I got a call and I went in at the end of that where she was, had been auditioning all week long and everybody was going to the audition. So all the cats and, uh, apparently nobody that she liked. And I went out as the last guy on Saturday, uh, and she liked me. And the, the road manager asked me to come back on, on Monday, and I did. And it's so funny. The story is, I, I'm in there not knowing whether I got the gig. Nobody knows they got the gig, but we're rehearsing, trying to figure this out, what make her happy. And uh, <clears throat> Ricky was confused at the time. She had, you know, she had problems. She had addiction and stuff like that. And so, uh, but a brilliant artist from moment one of playing with her and hearing her sing and listening to her music. Brilliant, brilliant. I had to woodshed Steve Gadd really, really, really tough. Yeah. I had to learn all of Steve's parts off the records just to make it as legit as I could. Um, so I come back on the Monday and uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, the door opens at the rehearsal room and in walks David Garibaldi. And uh, the road manager comes over to me and says, hey, man, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. But uh, David's her friend, and he wants, and she's gonna audition him as well. You know, I'm sorry, man, but but you know, thanks. And and I, and I didn't say, well, is that it or whatever. He goes, she said, I don't know. I'll let you know. 
So I dragged, pick up my stuff and walk out and walk past David and shook his hand. Hey man, how you doing? Nice to meet you. You're one of my idols. Uh, you know? Yeah. And I didn't tell him right then, but I didn't tell him right then, but I had been trying to seek a way to find a way to study with him, you know, at that time. So I go home on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I get a call from the keyboard player who was making the rehearsals and he and I were pretty close and pretty tight in another band. And he said, uh, Hey man, uh, I invited Ricky to the gig tomorrow night. I said, what for? He goes, I told her, you need to see Tony play in an atmosphere where he knows the material and he's confident and he can show you how he can drive the van. And so she came and she sat on the edge of the stage and watched me play. And afterwards, she was very friendly. She, and we went and had a drink and sat and talked and just bullshitted. And, and the next day, and, and I walked her to her car and she said, uh, will you come back and audition for me again tomorrow? And I said, no. <laughs> I won't come back and audition for you, but I'll come back and play for you. Like cocky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I better, I better, better start getting something going on here with my attitude. <laughs> if I'm going to be in LA. <laughs> yeah. So, so she's laughing. She goes, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. Well, reverse the whole thing about Garibaldi. I opened the door of the rehearsal place and Garibaldi's up there playing. And the, and the road manager once again, doesn't tell him in advance goes and whispers in, in, in David's ear and he gets up and walks off and he's, uh, he was disgruntled. I don't blame him. I'd be fucking mad. You yeah. know, I'd be yeah. pissed. Excuse my, excuse the F word. Um, he, and so he, uh, walks past me and we kind of, you know, greeted, he walks out. I don't blame him for being mad. Anyhow, I stay and I play and I mean, we played 30, 40 minutes and I kind of knew some of the tunes. I wasn't really, really, I wasn't really down 100% with him yet. I hadn't had a chance to get there. And the guitar player says, uh, and his boss and actually, hey, Ricky, I don't know about you, but uh, this drummer's making this man sound really good. If you don't hire him, um, I don't know about the rest of us, but you really need to hire him. And she goes, yeah, you're right. Let's do it right now. This is the band. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. <laughs> I remember that. What a moment, man. I just went, we all looked at each other and went, what? <laughs> really? Oh my God. We're Ricky Lee Jones's band. Oh God. You know, and then next thing you know, they're setting up the next rehearsal to the horns and da, 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 da. And we're in full production over at, uh, SIR on sunset when they had the big, big rooms in there for, you know, for production rehearsals and full sound and lights and everything. And, uh, Ricky pulled a little, you know, one of her deals that one day came in in a pretty, pretty bad state. And Chuck Rainey was the bass player on going to go on the road. He didn't do any of those rehearsals up to that. He was just the guy who was going to come and play his shit and go on the road. Yeah. And, um, after, after he saw that side of it, he kind of, he just split. He said, I can't do this. And we got another bass player. We had one rehearsal with him, but he had played with her before. And then two days later we went on the road hmm. and, um, Amazing. I mean, you know, amazing times back then of how things were done and, and they couldn't even get her to get on a plane at that time. You know, she was having problems and whatnot, but I have to say this without saying any more bad things about Ricky or anybody else, man, that was one of the coolest electrifying bands to play in. Cause we had to, we had to play some jazz. We had to play some funk. We had to play some, some R and B. We had to play some pop. You know, we had to, we had to paint, you know, and then you had to really nail it down when she was singing a certain way. And our dynamics were just amazing for like what, uh, five, six, seven, seven or eight piece band. Mm, yeah. They were incredible. And I mean, I listened back to that, the live stuff that we did, man, we did two tours. God, just incredible. So it was a great spot for me. And Bobby, what it did was it really gave me the confidence to go and be, you know, uh, a guy here in town, you know, a go-to guy. Yeah. So I got the call for Bette Midler the next summer, you know, and I went out with Bette and by then now I'm established as one of the guys you can call to go on the road. And I, because of that, I got a lot of other really good auditions. I got an audition with James Taylor that I didn't get, uh, the college Vega got, and some other artists around that time that weren't quite as big as that, that, but there were, you know, new signings and the, 
the record company was putting people in, you know, back then you'd make a record and they'd sponsor a tour. Yeah. <clears throat> it was called tour support. <laughs> Can't find that today. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So, and then I, uh, then I was discovered, uh, through a friend that I was, had been playing with around town, uh, to Bonnie Ray because she, uh, her drummer took off and, and I uh, was referred to her by a really good musician friend of mine that passed away a couple of weeks ago, which I'm really sad about. But um, I was referred by Marty, and uh, she came to see me play at the Vine Street Bar and Grill, uh, which was a jazz club. I was playing with Etta James, and um, she came to see me play and pretty much hired me on the spot. So I went and spent, uh, played with Bonnie from 84 to 91, and was there during the nick of time Grammys and all of that stuff. And, uh, I played on a couple of songs in that record. Okay. So one thing I want to know about when you were doing nick of time, did you think it was going to be the gangbuster hit that it was? Was there just a feeling that there was something special while you were doing it? I thought I've been asked that before. So I have to think about, you know, how to answer that objectively and honestly. Uh, I thought it was special that Bonnie was getting an opportunity by a label like Capitol. And I thought it was special that she had guys like Don Waz, who was new. He was really new, but it seemed like he might be the next guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And he did. He turned out to be the next guy. And, and, and had Ed Cherney Engineering, who was also that, that younger guy that was really on his way up as well at that time. And Ed has a great pedigree, had a great pedigree. Yeah. We all lost him, you know, as well. Yeah. He was a very good friend of mine. I loved him dearly, and I'm I'm just crushed that Ed's not with us anymore. It just it felt like something good was going on, but I don't know. I didn't get to play on all of it. She decided to use her old drummer from before on most of the tracks, and I ended up playing on a couple of things. But, yeah, when it came out, and then I was in the road band, okay? So I was still in the road band. Mm-hmm. So when it came out, and we're learning the stuff and playing it, and we're going... Well, this is definitely a freshness, you know, and it didn't take long to see that the record was doing well. I would say within months we could tell that the record was doing well and gigs were the, the profile of the gigs were going up, you know, Mm -hmm. so much so that we played several gigs that we shouldn't have been on before the year was out on that, you know, Mm -hmm. and then the Grammy nomination came and everything went through the roof, you know, pretty quick. So, um, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that that, that, that was going to be that magic. I knew there was something special, but I don't think I expected what I, what happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I can't remember exactly how I felt. I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is pretty, pretty accurate as to what I thought at the time. I was thrilled to be on a record with Bonnie Ray, with Ed Cherney and that gang and be on Capitol records and to be with an artist of her stature at that point and be part of any part of a recording. Whereas I hadn't been with Ricky or with, um, with Bette Midler. I, I did with Eric Burden, but he wasn't doing anything. And, and, and after I left the Eric Burden thing, I left it alone for something like 17 years. You know, we yeah. didn't talk for a long, long time. Not, not for any bad reason, just lost contact. Yeah, sure. So Bonnie's thing then took off really big, and then I got to play on the next record, which I played on uh, I Can't Make You Love Me. Yeah. And... Man, that was a pinnacle right there, and I didn't realize it. I mean, I walked to the, I walked into the studio, and I mean, I drove up to the studio, and Don was outside waiting for me, and he says, "Come on, I need you, I need you." And so, what? I'm not late because no, no, it's okay. I was going to be in a three o'clock session to cut another track, and uh, my drums are all set up and everything. And I walked in, and he says, "You got brushes?" And I barely heard any of the song, and I just started counting it off. I heard kind of the tempo they were going to play it at. And uh, I didn't sit and listen to the demo or anything at all before. Huh. And I counted it off. I counted it off. One, two, bang, and started playing. And then next thing you know, I Can't Make You Love Me appeared in front of all of us. Wow. And that was the take. That was the take right there, the first take. And uh, I'd never heard it before. We did it on the first take. And, you know, we did it several times after that but it didn't get better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny how that happens, huh? Uh-huh, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, yeah. I know you went on to play with some great artists, uh, Robert Cray, Taj Mahal, but I want to get to production. Before we get there, 
you've played a variety of music, but you seem to have found a home with blues. And blues has a distinctive feel. Was that from your upbringing in Houston, or is that something you learned? No, that was that was because that's the first music I really got, you know, I got pulled in. I got hooked by it in a very early age as, as a young boy. My father was a country and western guitar player, and, and well, there's plenty of music around the house, but, you know, my dad would be blaring country music all the time, and, and, and when we were in the car going somewhere as a family, it would be country music and everything. And this is an interesting story. If we have time, I guess, Yeah, cool. I guess I'm just going to tell you some little stories. Mike, we were, we were, I was, I was at that age where I wanted to drive, but I couldn't maybe 10 years old or something like that. 10, 11, something like that. But I was too young to drive, but I wanted to get in the car and start it and move it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So my dad, my dad would let me back the car up around to where the hose was and let me wash it on a Saturday afternoon. And, and of course, when I'm wiping it down afterwards, I got the doors open and I'm blaring the radio like like he did, like one does when they're doing that. They just play music, you know. And uh, um, I took a couple of the stations and I, all right, back up. My cousin Betty had been babysitting me. My cousin Betty was of the same family and everything, you know. Dad was a country and western a musician as well, and never professionally, but you know, way into it. And she was listening to the black radio stations, African-American stations as a kid, both of them in Houston, KCOK, KYOK and KCOH. And she would play this music and I'd be, she'd be babysitting me and I'm going, what is this? Oh my God. And it hit me, Bobby, it hit me between the eyes. And I went, something plug into me. So one Saturday afternoon while I'm doing the car, I reach over and I change the stations, you know, back then you could pull the button out and change the station. And yeah. I tuned them down to AKCOH and KYOK. And I didn't think to change them back later. And I didn't think my dad would go down there. And next, next day was Sunday after, after church, we're driving out to grandma's place to have a Sunday afternoon lunch with grandma and the windows are rolled down and it's summertime and my dad's blaring the country music and he punches the, one of the last two buttons on the thing. And of course, this wonderful gospel intensity comes out on a Sunday afternoon yeah. and that kind of radio. And it comes blared at my dad. What the hell? And then I'm not going to tell you what he said after that, but, um, he was like, who did that? Where did that come from? Who, you know? And I, and I said, that, I did that. He said, where'd you learn that? Where'd you hear that music? And I told him his cousin Betty was playing for me and he couldn't say much, you know? Yeah. And I just said, I, I really like it. I really like it, Dad. And then I was quiet because I didn't want to upset my father any further than I already had just by playing the wrong music. So um, nothing was said about it really after that, you know. And then I started getting involved in, with the drumsticks. And I got a pair of drumsticks and I learned to play. And that's when I started playing. So that's how I got steeped into R&B way back. And it stayed there. And when I was in when I finally started working in bands at the age of 15, I'm playing nothing but R and B, man. That's mm. all I'm playing. I'm going on the gigs and playing all the R and B hits <laughs> that were on the radio at the time, you know, yeah. um, uh, Rufus Thomas, do the dog, walking the dog, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff out of Memphis stacks records. Uh, the, the stuff that came out of New York, you know, uh-huh. uh, Ray, Ray Charles, Bobby Bland, you see, that was it for me. Ray Charles, Bobby Bland, that was where I lived, you know, in that, in that music. Yeah. And, um, and then of course, Stax records really made a big impression and later on muscle shows, but, but, uh, Stax and then, and I liked Motown as well. You know, uh, it, even though it was pop compared to the rest of it, uh, I liked that music as well. Cause it's R and B bass played by R and B musicians. So I, I kind of honed my style and skills on all of that. Uh, and so later on when, so like that Miller gig wasn't an R&B gig. The Rick Keeley Jones gig wasn't an R&B gig, but I used my R&B sensibilities on it. Uh, and, and I used my R&B sensibilities on a Bette Midler gig when there was tunes that had that feel, but the rest of it was more like show things, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, um, and then when I got on Bonnie's gig, boom, I'm back home again. And everybody saw that and heard that. And all my friends saw that and they went, Oh, that's you. That's you, man. That's where you come from. And so, I stayed on that gig until 
91 and then I came off and started joined a horn band called Jack Mack and the Heart Attack around town oh, yeah. and went toward in some and and worked with those guys for a few years and uh several years and uh and was playing in other soul bands around town as well two or three different bands that I'd be playing in that would be you know have one or two or three gigs a month around town in the clubs and I knew all their material and I was you know always always called a whore because I would be in how many bands are you in now? And I'd be in like five bands, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. being like five or six different bands, wear five or six different hats. Uh, then the Taj Mahal thing, uh, the band that we had with Bonnie, uh, was called padlock at one point. And, and after Bonnie got rid of us and hired a whole new band, except for the bass player she kept, um, we kept playing as padlock and there was a club called the mint. Oh on yeah. Pico. And, um, it was a really tiny place. It was half the size that it is now. And, uh, we played there a lot. We were regulars. We had like a kind of semi residence and we would play over there and, and hone our skills as a band, as an R and B band, a couple of horns, keyboard, four piece rhythm section and two horns. And we've invited different singers to come out and be our front people and soul singers and stuff. And we were having a great time and it was going really well. And then, Around that time, John Porter discovered us as a rhythm section, and he was an English guy here that was producing records, and he was starting to make some blues records. And uh, he'd already made a Buddy Guy uh, record, and he was looking around, and he came to see us play, and he went, oh, here's some cats. Oops. Oh, we got some rootsy R&B guys here. So we started making records with John Porter, and... uh, one of the earlier ones was a Taj Mahal record. We did Otis Rush. Uh, some of us played on Buddy Guy. I played a little bit of Buddy Guy stuff. Uh, we did an Otis Rush record, and then we did Taj Mahal record, and that's when we all kind of went, oh, there's something special going on here. And uh, we got hired back for this next Taj Mahal record, most of that nucleus of people, and uh, added on a few and uh, into what had become our band with Padlock, and then um, uh, Taj needed a band to go on the road. And so none of us were really, really too interested in going on the road because I'd had my spring with Bonnie and all the other stuff I did. And I was, I was enjoying the possible, sorry, overhead jet. I'm just outside because it's so pleasant right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so... I kind of enjoyed the fact that things were happening for me in town and I like doing studio work and I like making records and, you know, I was playing on a lot of other stuff for other people around town. Uh, not the first call guy by any means, you know, somewhere on the fringes of the second call or the third call guy, but still that got me quite a few calls. And, um, uh, after the second record with Taj, the, the label wanted to put him on the road. And, uh, so, we put a band together. He asked us to do it and they wanted to, the, us to be the man or the nucleus of us. So we put a band together and went on the road and, uh, he named us the Phantom Blues band because the second record we did was called Phantom Blues, Taj Mahal Phantom Blues. So he called us the Phantom Blues band. And we've been that ever since and we're at least five of our own. Um, and we went out with Taj in those mid nineties, 95, 96 till, 2002 or something like that. We did six, seven, eight years with Taj as well. And man, we won awards, knocked people down. I mean, there, we would be on festivals and we'd be the second or third band from the, from the, from the, uh, the headliner sometimes. And the guys that were headliners were going, we don't want to follow these guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we were hot. We were strong, man. Uh, and early in the nineties discovered the uh, rhythm legendary rhythm and blues cruise with Taj and, you know, went on that every, almost every year. And, and that was always kind of helped keep us out there in the thing, in the scene. And, uh, what? I, right around that time, uh, the it tail end of Taj, I started wanting to produce around 97, 98. And I started talking about it. That was my next question, actually. Yeah, I, I, I figured. So that's why yeah. I just segued here. And, and right around that time, and I'd only really made one album for a friend of mine from Texas out here. And, uh, and I, and I'd done some, 
produced some tracks for people that didn't become albums and they, they, you know, they didn't have the money or we only cut a few songs or whatever. So I was starting to dabble in being the guy who turned on the light and invited everybody to the party and who, you know, cleaned up afterwards and tried to make it something. And, uh, we did a, we were on the road with Taj and Taj says, Hey, uh, I don't want to do this other tour. These guys ask, uh, the business is not right. And we all agreed. We went, okay, we don't want to do it either then. He said, but instead, let's go make a live record. I'm like, Great idea. So I start to put together, put it together. Just not, not advancing myself as the producer going, I was kind of the liaison between management and the band anyhow. <clears throat> I'm not going to say band leader. That's the wrong thing. Liaison between management and band was, is good enough. And I uh, put together a gig at the Mint, and we booked three nights, the two sets a night. I arranged the recording situation. Uh, it was on DA88s or ADATs or something like that. And I still have the ADATs. And uh, I tried to do it on tape because I had a 24 track at the Mint in the back room. And no, couldn't do it. And too expensive. We we're not going to buy tape. And so blah, blah, blah. So I did it all on DA88. And I recorded all three nights. Uh, now, John Porter was supposed to produce this, the guy who we've been working with on all of our three previous records that we, you know, the third record we did with John Porter was, all of our records got nominated for Grammys, and the third one, uh, Senior Blues, won a Grammy. And so, uh, sorry, somebody's calling me. Go away. away. Can't talk right now. Um, so John Porter had been our producer. Now something happened at the last minute before we were going to do this live record and John was supposed to produce it and he got busy doing something else. So, um, I just kind of took the reins and made sure everything's together. And there was a moment there, Bobby, where I realized what I was doing right as I was putting that mint gig together. I hired a great engineer Terry Becker, I don't know if you remember her. She was a brilliant yeah. engineer. Oh yeah, and she came. She came out and uh, God, God rest her soul. And she she came out and engineered it for me. And I just something twigged. I went, this might be your opportunity, man. Take take the reins. So I made sure that it was recorded properly and had all the, the files and everything. And I recorded all the concerts on an, uh, a a dat. So I had a continuous, even, you know, I have gaps on the dat of 45 minutes where we just let it run, you know? Yeah. I said, I don't want to miss anything. I want a dat rolling the whole time from the time we get in the building till we all leave. Okay. So, um, that came in extremely handy later on because I was able to take that and go through that. And so no, I'm jumping ahead. So we record three nights, two shows a night. And eh, the first show wasn't good. The monitors weren't good. I, I don't think we got anything out of that. Second show that night got better. Next day got better. I said to the guys, can we be here early tomorrow at two o'clock and record a couple of songs? And they went, what do you mean? Well, I had already, I knew that the, it, would, it was going to be a good idea to have a couple of bonus tracks that weren't recorded, that weren't Taj songs previously on other records. So we could, for marketing. Mm-hmm. So I'm already thinking about marketing stuff back then, you know? So Taj, I said, Taj, you got anything? He goes, yeah, man, I got the song. Woulda, coulda. I said, all right, let's do that on, on Wednesday. Well, what are we doing? I said, we're going to record it in the, in the, at the gig. And I said, with no people, but I'll put, I'll dub in the, the crowd later, but we get that recording on that sound. So it goes with it. And he goes, oh, okay. And I said, and I got another song I wrote. So I, I took 30 seconds of something that he and Johnny Lee wrote for a movie <clears throat> just the, this, the musical theme I took and I wrote the whole damn song. And, um, we recorded both of those that day, <clears throat> included them on the live record. And at that point I knew, I knew I had something going on that I could do this. I knew at that point that I could produce that gave me the confidence, you know, to make those things happen like that. One to get everybody together at book the book, the club, get the recording stuff together, get the right engineer together, um, write those songs, have a concept. Basically, you know, I had a concept already in my head. I wasn't sure which tracks were going to be 
allowed to go on or whatever. And of course there was a moratorium on, on most of the material because of uh, previous releases on, on private records. So hands were tied and I had to work around it. Um, and after we got, I got home and the next day with the tapes and my wife was out of town for like a couple of weeks. She was a songwriter going to Nashville. And, um, I sat down for eight, nine, maybe parts of, of, of a 10th day every day with the remote control on the DAT tape and took copious notes of 105 takes wow. from the three nights. <laughs> I still got a written down because yeah. I went, I'll never get rid of this after that work, you know? Yeah, yeah. And right. I wrote it down on paper and I had, you know, I had columns of criteria for each track, you know, feel, tempo, vocal, solos, mistakes, sound, you know, audio quality, so on and so forth. And took, and then I boiled that down to a certain number of tracks that I liked and re then realized that so many of them were uh, on private in the moratorium, seven-year moratorium was getting in the way. And so I picked the songs. I ended up finishing 18 tracks took me almost close to a year several sessions with an engineer friend of mine joe mcgrath we would go into a studio and the management would give me money to go in for a day or two and i would change things fix things ended up overdubbing a couple of keyboards I ended up overdubbing a guitar once because i couldn't get the buzz off the original track and that was the best take you know just fixing things like that learning and learning and learning as i went and uh Boiling it down to 15 and then taking all of the, all of Taj's, um, speeches in between his, the, the, the songs I went and I pulled out the best ones from any show any night at any time, all the things he said, and I wrote all of them down and we edited them all out. And then I used those in between the songs. So I segued songs or I made them stop basically engineered, produced this record uh, to make it sound and have a certain feel like it ended up sounding. So that was a personable record, you know? Yeah. And uh, I got some coaching from a couple of engineer friends about where to get rid of some of the scenes, you know, where to close it up and stuff like that. And I took everybody's coaching and I ended up, so I thought it was it. And I, I, I took the 15 tracks of Taj first and said, <clears throat> We probably should only have about 10, 11, 12. What do you think, Taj? So we sat down and listened one day, and he kiboshed three of the tracks. And he said, let's use these 12. And he said, I want to re-sing two of them, or three of them. And so he came in the next day and re-sang those. And that's when I really knew I had to pinch myself, because now I'm producing Taj Mahal. Yeah, right. And I'm like going, wow, oh my God. I didn't say anything. I just let him do what he did. You happy? Yes. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you happy? If you're happy, you're happy with your vocals. So am I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm changed quite a bit now. I, I definitely coach people through their vocals a lot. Anyhow, I took that and I put it all together and found the right format and put all the spots in between and, and fine tune it, fine tune it, fine tune it. Got it. Okay. Mastered it. Boom. Printed it. And I um, forget the label it was out on. Um, the guy's name. Oh, he had some international labels as well. I'll remember it in a minute. Anyhow, it went out and, and uh, people loved it. It got great reviews. And did well. Got a Grammy nomination. Won a Grammy. Awesome. So that was my first real, real project of that scope. And I won a Grammy with it. So uh, I was pretty well over the moon with that. I bet. Okay, so what's the biggest thing for you as a producer that you think you bring to the table? I produce from behind the drum kit mostly in, in, in the studio when we were actually at it. I like to play drums on it. I think I lead the session the way that I want it to go, the way I've conceived it to go. and uh, uh, So that's one element. Uh, I also allow all the music. I hire musicians that I know I like to play with, that I know like to play with me, that we all like to play together. That when we get in the room together and hear a good song or even a bad song, if we hear a good song, we just chew it up, spin it out and have a ball. 
and I let everybody say what they want to say about it. I give, I take everybody's ideas and I think about them hard and I, and I give everybody the possibility of contributing to it. And that may be one of the reasons why guys seem to like the guys that I use seem to like working with me, you know? Sure. Um, uh, I can go in, I can have a preconceived idea about a song that I have and I go in and it can get changed because something more powerful comes up. So the reward, like we were talking earlier about, there's rewards of producing those. That's one of the rewards right there that when I get a room full of guys and we create something that no one wrote on paper or conceived and said, it's gotta be this way. That's magic. And that's the magic I go for. That's part of, that's probably one of the things about me as a producer that works. Uh, I get along with people. Well, in the beginning, I had trouble with that only because I was scared and new. Um, but I'm not scared now and I'm not new. And I, 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 when I, when I have a difficult artist that, you know, the neurosis comes out, you know, or whatever, I try not to get upset by the way they're acting if they're being moody or even rude or loud or whatever. I just kind of, you know, stay calm and say to myself, that's the neurosis that I need on this track. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm trying to channel and channel all that energy of that people. A lot of times people are afraid of their own creative energy and they, they rebel against ideas and things and whatnot. And then when you find a way that gets them in there and they get comfortable, then all of a sudden it just becomes magic. And I think that's, uh, if, if I got anything as a producer, it's that it's that communication. It's that realization of that. You know, I got that from being a studio guy, knowing when those moments were fabulous, when I played on records where it was fantastic and fantastic moments of performance by musicians all getting together in a room. And I wasn't the producer then, you know, but I just remember that. And I thought that's the stuff I like, you know, and when I've gone back and asked my mentors questions, you know, I've gotten that same feeling. I've gotten that same resonance from them. And that's what I remember when I take in the studio and I try to do that, not over manufacture something. And I try to let it be as natural as possible. And I think that's one of the things that people call me for a certain reason. That's, that's, that's gotta be it. I'm also, I'm also, I'm going to see it to the end and make sure there aren't, there's no flaws at the end. You know, I mean, a lot of people are more, but some artists are more particular about their mixes and their sounds than I am. And, and I accept that. I think they're over mixing. I think they're over listening, you know? Yeah. And I don't think that that, that always improves, but I, I'm going to let the artist do it. I'm not going to get in the way unless a label or the person with the budget says we're done. And I've had to do that and say, okay, we're done. Well, I don't like this. Also. Well, you're going to have to pay for it out of your pocket because the label's not going to pay for any more studio time. You know, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be weird, but that's the case. We've been through this, already we're on probably version 15 of the mix. So that's kind of ridiculous, you know? <laughs> and, um, you know, I think version three, four, five, you're just making it different instead of better at that point. I think that's, yeah. I always tell everybody, I said, you know what you're doing? You're focusing your ears on what you want uh, on one thing right now. Now you're focusing your ears on that vocal or that bass or that bottom end of that bass. You're not listening to the overall thing, you know? And I often say, please, please, please put it on a decent set of speakers in your house, turn it up pretty loud and walk away from the speakers. Just walk around the house. Just like when you were a kid, like when you first started listening to music, you listen to the radio, you didn't sit and put your head in the radio, you know? And until we started, you know, like in the sixties, when we started getting albums like the Beatles and stuff like that, we didn't stick our heads in things as much, you know, we listened to the room, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and the, the fidelity was different then. We also had, you know, before we had we had mono a lot as growing up, you yeah, know. Sure. And uh, and then when we got stereo, it wasn't nearly as sophisticated as things are now. And because of the technology, everybody's a little bit over sophisticated. And I think it helps and hurts. You know, the technology helps in some ways. There's there's a lot of things about it that working with Pro Tools really helps. You know, make things go quicker. But also, I miss tape. I miss the performance of tape. Yeah. Sometimes we try to use both. I think that's a good place to stop. Hopefully when you get back, we can do part two because there's so much more to talk to you about. I know it'll be really interesting. I'm having a great time, please. Thank you for asking me. 
You can find out more about Tony at TonyBronigal.com. It's all one word, Tony, T-O-N-Y. Bronigal is B-R-A-U-N-A-G-E-L, TonyBronigal.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOwnerCircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.